What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Gavin Armstrong, the founder and CEO of the Lucky Iron Fish Project. As a young kid, Gavin was bullied extensively, and he channeled those negative experiences into a strong drive to become a success in the world of high finance. During his university experience, he volunteered in refugee camps in North Kenya and saw firsthand the level of abject poverty, malnutrition, and hidden hunger that existed in the world. Determined to make a difference, Gavin decided to channel his drive and energy to addressing this problem, and from that, the lucky iron fish was born, an iron ingot that is making a massive difference in helping cure the massive iron deficiency that roughly half the world's population suffers from. Gavin was recognized as the first Canadian to receive the William Jefferson Clinton Award for International Work Against Hunger. His story is one of inspiration, perseverance, and hope. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Gavin Armstrong. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. We are incredibly lucky today to have Gavin Armstrong, the founder and CEO of Lucky Iron Fish. And there's a lot that I want to get to, Gavin. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the best place to start is the project that you've dedicated a good chunk of your life to in Lucky Iron Fish. Um, I've had an opportunity to dig deep into it, but I'm assuming there's probably quite a few folks in our audience who don't know anything about Lucky Iron Fish. Why don't you get why don't you start there and give us a little bit of an overview of what is the Lucky Iron Fish project? So the Lucky Iron Fish is a simple health innovation to combat iron deficiency around the world. And uh, quite um, simply, it's just an iron ingot that is uh, specially formulated that when boiled for 10 minutes in one liter of water, it can release a significant portion of your daily required iron intake. And it's shaped like a fish because that's seen as a symbol of luck and prosperity in different cultures around the world. So this overall iron deficiency and how it sort of hit your radar, tell us that story because as I was doing my research and I had no idea that roughly half the world's population is suffering from some level of iron deficiency. So I'd love to know where did this, where and how did this hit your radar? Yeah, so iron deficiency is the world's most common micronutrient issue negatively impacting the lives of, as you said, uh, half of the world's population. And though it's predominantly seen in the developing world, it still is uh, an issue in, in developed countries like Canada and the United States, and it mainly impacts women and children. Um, I became engaged with malnutrition and this concept of hidden hunger when I was volunteering in uh, the Dadaab refugee camps in northern Kenya. And there was so much effort going to provide food and meals to the um, hundreds of thousands of people who were there, but there still was a, a greater challenge, which was providing nutrition, uh, which would provide long-term sustained health. So that's how I became in, in issues around malnutrition. 
then uh, iron deficiency has been said to be a serious threat by the World Bank and by the Copenhagen consensus. And that's uh, where I decided to dedicate uh, my, my life to, I guess, is making a difference on that. You know, a lot's been made of, you know, the younger generations that are in our workforce or entering our workforce, that the natural disposition of, you know, those that are under 40 or even under 30 is much more geared towards wanting to make a positive impact. And, you know, with that, I think comes all kinds of uh, baggage. The millennials are entitled this, that, and the other. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, were you always wired this way that desiring to create positive impact and make the world a better place, as cliche as that might sound, you're really living it. Is this something that just happened for you early on? Have you always thought this way? Give us a sense of, of, of what your experience has been. It was actually quite the opposite. I came to university wanting to get into the world of finance uh, for very selfish reasons. I was um, bullied quite extensively growing up. And for me, I thought that making, um, uh, making a, a, a good living, being, having a job that had wealth and, and affluence, um, that would somehow validate myself and prove, you know, bullies wrong and, and prove I could be successful. So I came to university wanting to go into finance. And it actually was a field course that took me to Botswana that really opened my eyes to global challenges. It was my first time leaving Canada, really, and I traveled to Southern Africa and had an incredible experience on the trip, but also saw abject poverty and hunger up close. And I realized that I was on such a selfish trajectory only to prove some bully wrong who I was probably never even going to see again. Uh, so that's when I, I came back and I reflected on, on it, and I, I just thought I couldn't live that life anymore. I needed to actually do something to make an impact. And that's what set me on the path I'm on today. So this trip that you took to Botswana, was this a trip uh, as part of a university course that you took with other folks from your finance background or what your finance major was at the time? Or was this an eclectic uh, group of individuals from university? The course was actually called Politics, Science, and the Environment, and it was an interdisciplinary first-year seminar course. So students were from all backgrounds, and interestingly, I was the only business student in the group, and for the longest time throughout the semester, I felt out of place. I felt like I didn't belong. I was too shy to participate because everyone was bringing their, you know, their science background, their political science, engineering, and... I felt stupid compared to them. But then after um, actually doing some of these experiences, I realized they're bringing their perspective and no one's bringing the business perspective. That was where I could fit in. So I started talking about my you know, business uh, education and where some of the problems came in where business could be a solution and they didn't you know, know. So we were complementary to each other. Um, and so it was such a rewarding experience, but it took me a little bit of time to gain some confidence in it. You know, you bring up a, a really interesting topic in that, you know, some of these folks, uh, in fact, all of them, as you mentioned, other than yourself, were coming at some of these challenges from a, I'll say a non-business standpoint, and you were bringing the business acumen to how capitalism and business could be a positive source uh, or a positive force to create some change as you were you know, waxing poetic about 
what business could do. Were you met with resistance from these folks, like business is bad, stay out of our way sort of thing? Or were they embracing what you were saying right out of the gate? The the problem, like, so it was a problem-based learning course. So every week you had a new problem that you had to um, come up with a solution to, including the um, extinction of the monarch butterfly to um, desalinization projects in Australia. So it was quite a, a diverse range of topics. Um, I don't think I was met with resistance in this specific area because everything was hypothetical. Um, I have absolutely faced resistance and criticism in the real world with Lucky Iron Fish being a social enterprise um, and having debates around the role the private sector should play in um, solving problems, not creating them. What so share with me, you know, the type of resistance that you are being met with and, you know, what your response is and what role Lucky Iron Fish is playing. So I've actually had resistance on both sides. Um, uh, one, one camp would say you should be providing your product for free. And if it's um, for health, you know, it's a, it's a right that should be given out and having any kind of profit margin is just wrong. Uh, and then the other side has actually said, because we have a buy one, give one model where we purchase, if you purchase a fish for yourself, we commit to donate one for free to a family in need around the world. And we've had other people say, I'm buying this for me. I don't want to help someone else. Let them buy their own. Uh, so I've, I've had you know, arguments on both sides, but I think that those are sort of a small portion of the people we engage with. And the vast majority believe in our mission, are, are you know, engaging with us, are purchasing the product and are making us a sustainable and growing company. Now, when you launched Lucky Iron Fish, it wasn't a fish at first. It was, uh, I guess, a bit of a, you know, a disc or a bar type uh, chunk of iron. Tell that story about how this thing started and how you've evolved into what has become the Lucky Fish. So when the project started, um, it was uh, being done from research from a student at Guelph named Chris Charles, who was, was doing research on cooking with cast iron. And he was using an iron block or an iron disc. And though that was found to be scientifically effective, nobody wanted to use it. It was like asking someone to put a piece of garbage in their cooking pot. So he tried some different shapes and uh, discovered that the symbol of a fish really resonated with people in Cambodia because it was a symbol of luck. So he shaped the, the disc like a fish and people wanted to start engaging with it because they thought it would make them lucky. And then when I got involved, I absolutely loved the story and, and saw some potential there but knew that the fish needed to have some um, innovation to it to make it more sustainable and patentable. So I innovated what he called the happy fish, developed the lucky iron fish, and that's the product that we sell today. So since the product has been available, are you keeping track of the number of people and families that are being impacted as a result of the lucky iron fish? We do, on the mo for the most part, we definitely track the um, distribution of fish, and we work with uh, NGOs and other nonprofits and clinics to do impact assessments. So when we're providing the fish, that we can actually measure the impact it's having and the improvement of the health of the families who are using it. Um, last year, we've sold about 70,000 units, meaning we're in the process right now of giving away an additional 70,000 free fish. 
That's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I remember watching a video. I think it was, if it wasn't on the Lucky Ironfish site, it might have been on your GavinArmstrong.ca site that talked about the cost comparison of, you know, what a typical uh, iron deficiency pill might cost a family over a period of time versus the life of a lucky iron fish and its costs and, and frankly, its long-term effectiveness. I, I think it's a great statistic or a great uh, measurement to share. And I, I don't recall exactly what the numbers uh, were, but <laughs> I'm going to guess you do. Share with our audience, uh, the, you know, this, the overall cost effectiveness and impact of what one of these lucky iron fish can do. In the developing world, iron supplements can cost around $30 per person per year. Um, and obviously, it's a pill that you have to take every day, and there are negative side effects, which actually results in a compliance rate of only about 32%. So if you're giving 100 people pills, only about 32 people are taking them every day. The Lucky Iron Fish costs under $10, depending on the quantity ordered. The whole family can benefit from it, and it's reusable for five years. But not only that, because there are no negative side effects and it doesn't change the taste or color of the food, it has a compliance rate of about 92%. So not only is it astronomically cheaper, people are actually using it on a regular basis, making it arguably more effective. So one of the things from your background uh, that I saw was you are a fellow uh, from the Unreasonable Institute, which is uh, headquartered in Colorado. Uh, I've heard amazing things about the Unreasonable Institute. Being uh, from Canada and living in Canada, how did you choose Unreasonable and the Unreasonable Institute as the place for you to go to get whatever level of additional assistance you, you wanted as it relates to the work that you're doing? I was recommended to join the uh, Unreasonable Institute, or at least to apply to join the Unreasonable Institute from a former fellow uh, from it. So uh, someone who had done it, I believe, two years before. And the reason why there is such a great fit between the Unreasonable Institute and Lucky Iron Fish was that we were in a very difficult place. Uh, we were right at the a pivotal point of starting to grow and to have demand and uh, to people wanted they have to fish in, in different countries around the world. And we were just a, a team of two people. So the Unreasonable Institute incubator program helped us think through the process of strategic growth and how we can um, succeed and not fail in taking advantage of the opportunities that were out there, but not being unrealistic or spreading ourselves too thin. Overall, there was a great fit with uh, Unreasonable and Lucky Iron Fish. I mean, they want to solve unreasonable problems in an unreasonable way. And what's more unreasonable than getting 3.5 billion people to cook with an iron fish? <laughs> I guess that would certainly fit into the uh, the unreasonable classification, that's for sure. So the focus in Cambodia certainly, uh, you know, sort of screams out from all the work that you're doing. Why Cambodia of all the places to focus on? Well, Cambodia has very high rates of, of iron deficiency in certain populations. Um, and when we began doing our, our work there, the understanding was it was uh, high rates of iron deficiency, but actually it's now becoming more and more um, 
obvious that it's different forms of anemia, so uh, hemoglobinopathy, thalassemia. And in terms of um, collecting data from a diverse population, um, it made a lot of sense to continue trials in a country we had already done some work in, um, but also using um, some uh, you know, populations that have diverse challenges with anemia. But also, Cambodia is the country that inspired the mission. It's where the happy fish and then the lucky iron fish was born. And so we obviously felt very connected to it and, and really wanted to make a difference there. You know, given that uh, half the world's population suffers from some level of iron deficiency, and, and as you said, you know, the developing parts of the world are probably a bit more susceptible to iron deficiency. You know, I, I'm just, I'm curious with so much work to do and so much impact to create, do you ever feel like it's just never going to be enough and it becomes almost so daunting of an undertaking that it just, it's just so overwhelming that the magnitude of the challenge. Yeah, sometimes you can feel that way. Um, and uh, one of the um, one of the uh, learning issues I've had to to deal with is when I was pitching for investment dollars, I would go up on stage and I would say half of the world's population suffers from iron deficiency. Imagine we could provide 3.5 billion lucky iron fish. And that's just incredibly unrealistic. <laughs> I mean, trying to overnight uh, create um, a product that can get to half of the planet, no one's going to invest in that because that's just not realistic. Um, but what we've been focusing on now at Lucky Iron Fish is the concept of depth versus breadth. So we, instead of just having a few fish spread out across the planet, we want to focus on critical areas where we know we can have a, a major impact and really provide a, a large number of fish to those communities and then measure the outcome uh, and the impact from that, and then grow from there. And so it's taking a bit more of a um, staggered approach, but that it's much more sustainable uh, to do that. And sometimes you can get down and you can think of, you know, the problem is so, so grand and is this long time frame really making a difference. But what you have to remember is every day we are helping improve someone's life. And I'm a strong believer in the power of one. Uh, I think one person can make a difference and one action can have a ripple effect um, that will create major change. And that's what you really have to focus on in those darker moments. So I'm curious from a, from a recruiting standpoint, which is the business that uh, that's my day job, if you will, having such a strong social mission. And, and I want to get to some of the, the awards that you and Lucky Iron Fish uh, have garnered up to this point. I'm curious from a recruiting standpoint, are you finding it easier to compete with much larger, perhaps more established organizations that might be able to offer more perks and benefits, but may lack the social impact or uh, may say they do it, but really don't, they, you know, they don't walk the talk. Are you, are you finding that that is truly an advantage for Lucky Iron Fish and your ability to attract superstars to come help you do what you're doing? I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I, I think that there is a huge risk working with any startup, um, whether the social mission is as incredible uh, as Lucky Iron Fish's is, or um, if it's in any other space, there's a major risk in, um, in the um, ability for that startup to grow. 
you know, about seven, they say seven out of 10 startups fail. And so there's definitely uh, the, I think the um, typical person we see applying for the job is younger and a bit more nimble uh, and able to sort of to move around a bit more. Um, but on the other side, we definitely have some incredible people who have applied who want to take the company further. They want to actually help the company grow. So for them, they're not applying for a job. They're applying for an opportunity to make Lucky Iron Fish something great. And I'm really happy with the team that we've, um, that we've got. And um, we've grown a lot over the past year. And I can't wait just to see how we continue uh, to grow. I love that language. The people aren't applying for a job. They're applying for an opportunity. I think that's just, you said it so nonchalantly because I think it's just second nature to, uh, to who you guys are, but I, I think it's really powerful language. So I just, I, I had to, to repeat that for a moment because I think it was really great. Um, let's talk about some of these awards just for a minute because it is an impressive list and there's no way we'd have to extend uh, our conversation <laughs> by probably another hour or so to go through all of it. But just a few that jumped out at me. Uh, the Unilever Sustainable Living Young Entrepreneur Award, uh, Social Innovator of the Year through Babson College, Forbes Top 30 Under 30. Um, I mean, my goodness, I think you were the first Canadian to receive the William Jefferson Clinton Award for International Work Against Hunger. Um, tell me, you know, for a, a relatively young guy early in your career, how does it feel to have all of this attention in the form of awards and recognitions? Is it, does it, it what does it mean? How does it feel? Well, for starters, I don't feel young. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I think awards are awards and accolades and, and recognitions like the ones you listed are um, there. You have to be very cautious. I, we we at Lucky Aaron Fisher are really proud of the awards we've received because they create a platform for us to tell our stories. And for me, it's encouraging to have other young entrepreneurs see. Um, the story of how Lucky Iron Fish started and see the success we're having to really kind of empower and you know, create some inspiration for them. So uh, that's definitely the advantage of them. But uh, the one side is you also don't want to get caught up with awards. And the one um, piece of advice I would give to anyone who is starting to receive some awards is once you get one, you'll find a lot more want you to apply for them. Um, and some awards do come at a cost, and um, you'll see that, oh, you won the Forbes uh, 30 under 30, would you, be, would you consider applying for this award? And then when you say yes, they send you a bill, and it's a lot of time in the application, and it just becomes a bit of an ego piece. So we're very strategic in how we think about awards and recognition because it's a lot of time, and you want to do it for the right reasons and not just to have something great on your shelf. Makes sense. Makes sense. Are there other projects that you are working on in addition to Lucky Iron Fish? A lucky Ironfish is my full, full-time job. Um, I did just finish my PhD at the University of Guelph, but that was on Lucky Ironfish. So though I was doing two things, it all was about the same objective. So Lucky Ironfish, one of the things I, I noticed was that you decided to uh, go for the B Corp certification, uh, something that uh, my firm has done as well. Why'd you guys do that? What's, what's the significance of, of displaying the B Corp seal? When I started Lucky Iron Fish, 
I knew I wanted it, no matter what and how we were going to do it, I wanted it to be a full-fledged social enterprise. And for me, a social enterprise is something that has an impact throughout its uh, supply chain. I often get referred to as a social entrepreneur, but I actually prefer the term impact entrepreneur because it's not just the product that's social for me, it's the business model and how you get that product out there. So when I developed the model, we put positive social elements throughout, the, throughout everything we did. So whether it was the paper and our printer and reducing our environmental footprint, to having uh, transparency and, and adequate uh, quality um, practices and bylaws, um, to supporting our community. And we did all these things. And then I learned about B Corp and basically said, well, we're already doing all of these things. You might as well become B Corp certified. And when we did the certification assessment, we actually ranked in the top 10% of B Corps internationally. So we were already doing all of these things uh, that got us to be recognized as best for the world right away. So this was just natural. It wasn't uh, spurred on by wanting to get the B Corp certification. You were already doing it. And it just so happened, hey, let's just go through this and see how we rank. And bingo, you're in the top 10% glo uh, globally, as you said. We were, but I will also say um, I've set a bit of a, a challenging goal for our, our, our team. And that's though we have this really high score, I always think we can do better. And so we're always looking for ways that uh, we'll improve our B Corp score when we do the, uh, the assessments every two years or the audits every two years. So just because we're a strong B Corp doesn't mean our score is good enough for me. <laughs> and maybe that's a bit stressful <clears throat> for everyone else. But I think we can always be better. Well, that's, uh, I think that's a great orientation to have. I'm curious uh, for business leaders out there, because many uh, of the folks in our audience who tune into the podcast didn't grow up in a time and a place where as much emphasis around creating social impact and just impact in general through business, it was just, I think it was a different time and a different place. And, and, you know, many folks who are leading organizations today were taught uh, that profit maximization is what matters most, right, wrong, or indifferent. It is what it is. And as someone who uh, clearly uh, wants to grow a business and do so in a sustainable way, which means you've you've got to make money, whether you're doing it as a nonprofit or a for-profit, you've got to have uh, money and cash flow to continue to invest to create the type of impact. That being said, for the leaders out there, what advice would you give for those that are trying to move in a direction where what they're doing is creating more impact, whether that's on the environment, their clients, the community, or perhaps something as simple as just amongst their team and the people that they interact with every day as teammates. What's, what's your best piece of advice? Well, I think there's, uh, there's really three takeaways from shift. I think the, the Friedman economics model is, is no longer um, the dominant force anymore. I think that maximizing shareholder returns isn't the only mission of a company. Customers are, um, are identifying with that and are moving towards companies that have sustainable brands. Uh, employees are looking to work for companies that have a social mission. They want to feel good about where they work. And so I think we are seeing this trend because millennials are um, becoming more and more of the, uh, the purchasing power in the market that companies need to adapt and um, provide 
the kind of product that these um, that these individuals want to have. Uh, there's a huge shift of purchasing power going from the baby boomers to millennials. Um, the second is the sustainable uh, development goals through the United Nations are really focusing on private sector involvement. And there have been studies that have shown that by achieving the sustainable development goals, which includes health and nutrition, sustainable consumption, protecting the oceans, there will actually be a few trillion dollars put back into the economy. And so as a global society, it's all in our best interest to invest in create, making the world a better place because it will create more economic opportunity. So it actually is, there's a social mentality for it, but also an investment. Uh, there's a strong return on investment for doing that. Um, and then the third is, um, it's just, it's what um, the new norm is. And so I think whether it's a large multinational company like Unilever, who's leading the way and creating sustainable brands or it's small startups working out of garages, um, everyone is thinking about not just the bottom line, but the triple bottom line. You know, when you're out and about and you're having conversations with people all across the uh, all across the world, and you're met with, and I'm sure there's some there's some folks out there who they don't believe that climate change is happening, they don't subscribe to the global warming, they don't think overfishing is an issue, they probably also poo-poo on you know, the sudden and drastic disappearance of bees and all these challenges, these little signals, well, they're probably big signals, not little, that are that are popping up. How do you respond to that as somebody that is dedicating his life to creating positive impact uh, through your enterprise? What do you say to those folks? Do you engage in the discussion? Do you just let them have their opinion walk away? What's your approach? Uh, I think it depends how drastic their opinion is. Uh, I don't think anyone could argue that the world doesn't have challenges. I think it's um, global warming has been quite politicized. Um, but when you look at all the SDGs, I mean, hunger, gender equality, um, protecting the ocean, those are things where there are, there are quantitative evidence that it's, that it's not working. Um, and I think that deep down, most people do know that there are um, problems. They just don't feel it's their responsibility to fix them. And I think it's around telling stories around how simple actions can have an amazing impact. That's my approach to it. Um, I mean, the other is you can't argue against the United Nations and all most scientists and governments around the world, but um, at least think about improving one aspect of society because we know we don't live in a perfect world. And that's really how at least even the largest sort of disbeliever can try and at least reflect on what they can do to make some sort of difference. So I am 99% sure that you are the first Canadian that I've ever had that I've ever had on the program. So thank you for that. And given that uh, the U.S. is about uh, a week away from a presidential election, and uh, I, I would imagine you have an opinion, and I'm not going to ask, you know, who you're voting or who you would vote for. I'm just what I am curious about as as our phenomenal neighbor to the north, as we like to say, can you represent for us a general feeling of what perhaps 
the world is seeing and feeling about the what what I think is a bit of a circus uh, right now with this upcoming presidential election? Yeah, that's a, I definitely will, will somewhat be restrained. Um, I feel you like... don't have to be if you don't want to, but I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> well, I think that there are there's so much at stake in um, in the election for the United States, which is a major you know global superpower, ranging from a lot of success that's happened over the past four to eight years with the U.S. leading the helm. So uh, the um, Paris Climate Accord, um, even the development and commitment to the SDGs, to the UNHCR, the refugee crisis. There are so many um, really positive successes that have happened and that I think the United States should be proud of playing a part in. And to have one group want to undo that really for political reasons and using it as a uh, I think a bit of a tactic to galvanize people and to spread a lot of false information. Um, it's it's quite um, scary, and I I just think it's unfortunate. But I do think at the end of the day, cooler heads will prevail. Um, I think what we've seen around the world is we're coming into the ebb and flow of trying to do good but still protect the protect people within the borders as well and the, the Brexit referendum and uh, sort of uh, more right-wing parties being elected in Europe. Um, it's really, a, it's coming, there is a lot going to the left and so some of the right takes it back. And I think that there hopefully will become a bit of balance and that this is a bit of an outlier, but um, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what, what happens on Tuesday. Yeah, we certainly, uh, we will certainly know in, in about a week's time. Well, I know, uh, I know you've got things that you need to get to, Gavin, and uh, I just I want to share with our audience that the, if they want to learn more about Lucky Iron Fish, the best place to do that is luckyironfish.com. You can learn all about what Gavin and the Lucky Iron Fish team are doing to help positively impact the massive amount of iron deficiency that is affecting roughly half the world's population and you know, really severely impacting uh, the world's population and some of our developing, uh, some of the developing parts of the world. Gavin, what a pleasure to have you on. I think you're a phenomenal representation of what the future holds for, for the planet, frankly. I'm incredibly optimistic. I love that there are people out there just like you who are using their brains, their heart, their soul to create positive change in the world and to help people uh, in faraway places. Uh, I, I just think it's fantastic. So thank you for doing what you're doing and thank you for joining us and sharing just a little bit of the Lucky Iron Fish story with us. No, thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion. Absolutely. I wish you the best. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Gavin. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Also, if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.